the Fed has the power. They're on the job. They're going to do what it takes to arrest this recession before it tumbles into a depression that so many people have been worried about. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And I'm Laura Conaway in New York. David, you say the date today. It's uh, it's Tuesday, December 16th. It's around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. On today's show, we're going to talk about a kind of uh, – it's complicated, but I would say it's totally fascinating. These uh, financial transactions that Bernard Madoff was apparently engaged in. Madoff, as you probably know, has been accused by the SEC of running a giant Ponzi scheme. And by giant, I mean maybe something like $50 billion. Which is truly giant. But first, let's do a little news. The Federal Reserve got everyone's attention today, just now, actually. That's because it set a new target for its key interest rate, the one that uh, the one for overnight lending for banks moving money back and forth. The interest rate had been one percent, and the new rate actually it's a range anywhere from a quarter of a percent down to zero. Wow! And you don't get any lower than zero. Yeah, you do not get lower than zero, and I guess it just goes to show that officials are still really nervous about this recession and turning it around. But our Planet Money indicator today, David, is a much larger number than zero or even 0.25%. <laughs> the number is 18.9. Tell me. That is the percentage drop in new housing starts from October to November. And I know you're going to tell me that's another historic low. It is. The interest rate today went to the lowest level on record. And the Commerce Department, they're the folks who track housing starts, they say they haven't seen them this low since, get this, 1959. That sort of makes sense, though, you know, because there are all these houses, unsold houses on the market right now. You can understand why people would not be building new ones. Yeah, exactly. And maybe the silver lining is that by stopping building new ones, some of the supply can kind of get soaked up and things get can get turned around. But the bad news is that this housing market has been in a downward trend for three years, and it's still posting big drops like this. I talked to Ian Shepardson. He's the chief U.S. economist for high-frequency economics. And he says that the market's not only getting worse, it's getting worse faster. And I asked him what that signals. Well, it tells me that the massive hit that the whole economy has had from housing isn't going to diminish anytime soon. And remember, it's not just housing construction because... When people aren't moving home, uh, whether they're buying a new home or an existing home, what they tend also not to do is buy new stuff for the home, like furniture and furnishings and curtains and carpets and new flooring and new TVs and computers, all that stuff tends to be quite closely linked to the number of transactions in the housing market. And they're still continuing to fall at really a rather alarming rate. And that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why so many of the retailers of housing-related stuff are finding their life so incredibly difficult at the moment. And unfortunately, looking at these data, there's nothing at all in them that tells me that things are going to get better in any way in any time soon. Does the accelerating pace of decline in the housing market signal to you that we're going to get to the bottom faster or that the bottom is further away than we thought? I think the bottom, unfortunately, is going to be a bit further away than we had been thinking. We did see some real signs of stability in the summer uh, before the Lehman blow-up, before the crash in the stock market. Some of the numbers on the housing side were beginning to stabilize and some are actually picking up a little bit. And I was hopeful that that was the bottom, but clearly the massive hit that we've had to consumers' confidence and, of course, the massive 
hit on credit availability over the last two or three months uh, seems to be suggesting that the bottom is actually further down than I've been thinking. So once again, David, this recession is exceeding expectations. <laughs> that, yeah, another bit of good news. Thank it, you. Um, today, we had another important number, 1.7%. Right. That is the drop in the consumer price index. And normally we think of the CPI as measuring inflation, but it dropped, which means that things are actually getting cheaper. Uh, however, if you unpack the numbers and you look a little deeper, it's mostly falling gasoline prices, because if you take out energy, uh, the prices really actually haven't changed since the previous month. Yeah, economists pretty much agree that it is the drop in energy prices that's making the consumer price index go down. But still, we're getting a lot of questions from listeners who are asking about deflation, and economists are definitely training an eye on it. I asked Shepardson whether we're looking at true deflation, not just a price fall here or there, but true deflation, which is so frightening because it is so difficult for policymakers to fix. And Shepardson said, not yet, not true deflation yet. He said core prices like food and clothes have been stable. And he told me that we have to see wages falling too before we get to deflation. Not just prices. You actually have to see wages drop also. Yeah, it's it's those things in tandem. And what we'd like is some help from you guys out there in the audience. If you're seeing falling wages, yours are people who work for you. And I'm not talking about layoffs. I mean, you have a job or you're giving jobs and you're making less or the new employee is making less for doing the same work. Let us know, please. You are the people who might see this first. If it happens, may not happen. If it does happen, let us know. Right on the blog, I opened an item at npr.org slash money. All right. The next couple minutes on the show are going to be a little complicated. Great. But if you stick with us, if you stick with us, you will probably, I would say definitely, be the only one of your friends who knows what a split strike conversion is. Yes. This came up in a great Wall Street Journal article today. It was about Bernard Madoff, the guy who allegedly ran what's the world's largest Ponzi Right. Scheme. Madoff ran this very exclusive operation where people would give him, in some cases, billions of dollars, and he would invest it. And like magic, every year, those investments uh, would make impressive and really impressively steady returns. The Wall Street Journal article gives a glimpse into what those trades were, or at least how Madoff was claiming he was investing the money. Right. And that's where we get to the split strike conversion. So I called Perry Merling. He's an economics professor at Barnard College. Let me warn you that this conversation has some words that may not be appropriate for children, like um, put option contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let me say just to set this up that a uh, you know put options and call options, basically, they're different kinds of uh, you can think of them as insurance. All right. Here it is. I asked Perry Merling if he could explain what these trades were. Um, well, I can try. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> um, this is called uh, uh, split strike conversion, and the uh, it basically has three elements to it: that you buy some some actual stocks, actual equities. Um, so that's the first part of the trade. Um, the second part is that you also buy some put option contracts on the S and P one hundred. Um, if the stocks go down, the puts uh, pay out. So it's basically um, an insurance policy. It's an insurance policy, downside protection. It's not a hundred percent insurance, meaning that it only kicks in after you've already lost, say, five percent. So that's the strike price. That's the lingo. So you own a stock and you own some insurance against it dropping below a certain level. Yes, correct. And then what's the next step? The next step is that you sell um, a call option. Um, 
at 5% above the current value of the market. So you're um, selling insurance. You're now. selling insurance, um, and, the, and you get a premium for that. And the idea of this is that the premiums that you're getting from selling calls um, more or less are the same as the premiums that you're paying um, in buying the puts. So you, you're, you're buying insurance. Uh, that costs you some money, but you're also selling insurance, mm-hmm. uh, so that makes you some money, and those about cancel out. That's correct. Right. So what are you left with? Um, what you're left with is a position where uh, you can't lose more than 5%, and you can't make more than 5%, um, but you also own the stocks, and so you get the dividends on those stocks. Ah, is that the key part? Um, that's a key part. Dividends will always be positive. There aren't negative. There aren't negative dividends. So on average, this—I mean—if the market is not moving anywhere, on average you're making money because if the market's not going anywhere, at least you're getting the dividends. If the market's going up, you're getting five percent plus the dividends. If the market's going down, you're losing um, on the on your long position in the stocks, but you're gaining on uh, on on. You're still getting the dividends. Okay, Laura, was that clear? Okay, let me see. I'll try. I'll try to say it back to you, okay? Okay, go ahead. You buy stock. Yep. You buy stock. You buy insurance on that stock against the idea that its price might fall. Exactly. You sell insurance on the idea that that stock's price might fall. Or might rise, might rise. Might rise. Yeah, so if it rises, you have to pay somebody off. So it's sort of like betting both sides of a football game. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what it's like. So if, you know, if it goes up, so you basically can't make more than 5%, you can't lose more than 5%. But and you while get you're the there, di- you get the dividend. You get payments. the dividend. Okay, great. Yeah. I got it. Thank it you. It sounds great, right? Yes, I want the dividend. <laughs> so that apparently was was the pitch or one of the things he said he was doing for his clients because that's what uh, some of the clients had on their statements when they got statements from him saying, here's what we did with your money. Okay, here's what I always wonder when people start talking this way, betting one way and betting the other way. Why would you want to do something that complicated? I asked Perry Merling that exact question. The advantage to doing it... um... Instead of just buying a stock or something. The advantage to doing it... Um... Well, now you've got me. What is the advantage to doing it? I guess maybe it's a slightly lower risk because your your losses are kind of limited. Well, you could sell it to... You you could... could, (laughs) I'm sure that was the pitch that he made to his clients, okay? That he had this way of limiting limiting losses um, and back testing it on on data during an up market okay he showed that it almost never had a losing month and it wouldn't have any losing months um, in a market that's generally trending upwards um, it's in this kind of market um, where you have many many losing months um, in, a, in, a, in a row um, you're going to lose every single one of those months with a strategy like this. So let's consider the possibility that this was all fake, that it really was a Ponzi scheme. If you're running one of these things, how do you think you're not, it's not all going to crash at some point? Okay. If, if, it, if it really is just a Ponzi scheme, okay, it may be that there are no trades at all happening here, okay, that all of this is just, is just statements that he's giving to clients. Okay. And if, from that point of view, okay, the only thing that's important to keep the Ponzi scheme going is that the money coming in from new clients is greater than the money going out from redemptions. Okay. You can report on your statement any return you want. Okay. As long as people don't take their money out, it's just fiction. 
Right, but what is going on in the back of your mind? You're thinking, I'm going to leave the country in eight years or ten years? Well, you would need a psychologist for that. Um, I'm I'm saying if you wanted to run this thing and you were doing it just just consciously and and openly and you just intended fraud, okay, that's what you would be doing. Could you also imagine a situation where you start out honestly with some trades that don't work so well and yeah, it kind of morphs yeah. into a Ponzi scheme and then you think, well, this is the one of these... story in the book that people, they, 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 they don't want to disappoint the clients or they hide some losses. They, yeah, and they, they hope that it's all going to come out um, and, uh, and it gets bigger and bigger and it gets beyond them. We'll, we'll find this out, uh, no doubt, you know, over the, as the story unwinds. Um, exactly. It it seems rather doubtful that he set out to defraud, to, to create such a large fraud as this. But uh, it uh, it does it does seem that that's the way it wound up. Is this is this whole thing just fascinating to you? Well, it or is horrifying. Um, are there is there a difference? Um, there there it's certainly both. Um, you know the the. You may have may have heard uh, Warren Buffett's famous phrase that that in markets like this we find out who's been swimming naked. Okay, Here, here's when all the water goes out of the pool, right? You, and this is the kind of thing that you discover. Uh, you know, there, there are many many people who thought they were had found a perpetual motion machine, something that would that would give you risk free money. Um, and we're finding this in all the locations, and there'll be there'll be more to come. Um, because the water is coming out of the pool. Thanks to Perry Merling, uh, professor of economics at Barnard College. Also, he wrote a book called Fisher Black and the Revolutionary Idea of Finance. Fisher Black was an economist who was actually trained as a mathematician, and his work really helped kick off this incredibly complicated world of finance that we have today. For better and worse. Let's wrap this podcast. Okay. I'm Laura Conaway. Check us out on the blog, npr.org slash money. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening.